The book of James brings a nice balance to the other New Testament letters. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that we are saved by faith alone and not by works. James, on the other hand, reminds us that true faith will produce good works, for faith without works is dead. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this very practical epistle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now we bow our hearts before you. We acknowledge that we can't understand or make sense of this word unless your Holy Spirit open the eyes of our hearts. So we pray that you do just that and help us to hear what your Spirit is saying, understand it, and put it into practice. In Christ's name, amen. This from CBS News last year and the Associated Press. He seemed like Superman, able to guide jumbo jets through peerless skies and tiny tubes through blocked arteries. As a cardiologist and a United Airlines captain, William Hammond taught doctors and pilots ways to keep hearts and planes from crashing. He shared millions of dollars in grants, had university and hospital posts, and bragged of work for prestigious medical groups. An Associated Press story featured him leading a teamwork training session at an academy there uh, of cardiology uh, convention last spring. But it turns out there's only one problem with the story. Hammond isn't a cardiologist or even a doctor. The AP found out that he has no medical residency fellowship or doctoral degree, or the 15 years of clinical experience that he claimed. He attended med school for a couple years, but dropped out. It appears while Hammond never actually treated a patient, he was consulting and training other cardiologists and ER technicians, mostly about teamwork, thank goodness, and writing and putting together medical conferences. He claimed to be a cardiologist. He looked good in the pictures, and he could talk the talk. But when it came down to it, Dr. Hammond was not a doctor at all. They say he was a convincing speaker. He was a captain at, at United Airlines. He was a pilot. He was not a doctor. Familiar with the subject, knowledgeable, sincere, they said. They, he fit in with real cardiologists, hung around them all the time, was friends with them, sat at table with them. But the bottom line never changes. The claim was false. No matter what he said, he was not a doctor. Now, the humorous form of inductive reasoning goes, if it looks like a duck, swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. (laughs) It may claim to soar on the wings like eagles, 
But sooner or later, later rather, by the habitual behavior, we find out, we figure out what it really is. Now, here in the book of James, James, as I said, has been delivering some sharp shooting, straight shooting teaching to some Christian congregations that were very unhealthy. They lived in first century Roman Empire where it was really not very fashionable to be a Christian and oftentimes it was punishable by death to proclaim a different king other than the emperor at the time. And so they lived in this pressure cooker of trials and uh, tribulations, lots of troubles, lots of pressure, so they were compromised in their Christian commitment. Their devotion to Jesus was waning, and they started to delude themselves. They watered everything down to fit in better. So they thought, well, perhaps if we weren't so pronounced about our Christianity, it would go a lot better for us. And so from these Jewish Christian congregations came a deadly form of nominal Christianity. Nominal Christians have been a problem for 2,000 years. It's not just about today. Now, the word nominal means in name only. I found a great definition. A nominal Christian is one who is a Christian in name only. In other words, those who call themselves Christian but do not have a trusting, faithful, dependent, and personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ they are not born again. Nominals can, I call them nominals. Nominals can either be regular attenders or rarely attend like at Christmas and Easter. They maintain fellowship with followers of Jesus, but in their heart, they have an apathy, no interest, or even unbelief toward the Lord Jesus Christ and his lordship. They can sing the songs, quote the scriptures, and show interest in a Bible study, but in their personal lives, there's really nothing to show for it. A nominal Christian, therefore, is really just an unbeliever with the outer appearance and label of Christian. Well, this kind of insipid or tasteless or empty Christianity is really what James is going to be talking about this morning, and he's going he's to get in their faces He's going to get sharp with them. And why? Uh, Because he doesn't love them? No, because he loves them. And God wants everybody not to be clinging in hope to uh, a life preserver with holes in it. If I knew that the bulletproof vest you were wearing and you were going into a little bit of a shootout was faulty or fake, and it felt like the real thing to you, And I knew I should really do my best to convince you to take off the fake armor and put on the real thing before you go out and shoot it out with some bad guy. This is the motivation when correction comes down at us and we feel like really um, affected by a sharp word. It's because it comes out of love for us to be blessed So here's what's going on here. James is going to talk to these people who don't have any works in their lives but call themselves Christians. And they are going to come back at him and say, "Uh, James, we're saved by faith alone. Read Paul. And so James is going to have to define 
what Paul means when he says faith, what biblical faith is. It is not an intellectual assent that there is a God, that it's a personal trusting in that God that, that evidences itself with a changed life. They did not have that. And James is going to try to prove that to them. It's crucial that you hear their lame argument before we read James' holy tirade. You know, they're saying, really, this is what they're saying. James, listen, you may not see much in my life, but I'm saved by faith alone. I believe in God, and that's enough. And James says, no, it isn't. And the entire Christian world gasps. Because Paul has been telling us over and over again, all you got to do is trust. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so they're playing that game with James. And James, they say, whoever called on the name of the Lord, Jesus, (laughs) I did it. See, I'm saved. And he says, no, you didn't. That's not faith. Now, that's where we pick up. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith? Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. And if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Now here's the kicker you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different direction as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without deeds is dead So we're going to consider this portion of scripture this morning, and it kind of divides into two really logical parts. If you're taking notes, number one would be the uselessness of dead faith, and number two would be the fruitfulness of living faith. Now, Paul is really going to be emphasizing the the method. Paul, I should say, the apostle, uh, emphasizes the method of getting saved. Look, 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 this is how you come to God. No good works, but you, you come believing and trusting that the cross saves you. 
Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And James picks it up from there and says, once you've done that, that faith should look like this. Paul starts with the beginning of our faith journey and James the culmination of our faith journey, the product of actual believing in God and having that faith. So let's take a look first at the uselessness of dead faith. Now, just saying dead faith is kind of an oxymoron. You know, it's the fish that can't swim. It's the pointer puppy that can't point. It's the, as I said, the bulletproof vest that doesn't stop bullets. When you say fake faith or dead faith, it's Christians without Christian behavior. Same thing. And so James starts his holy tirade, his verbal assault, with two rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is really a statement uh, phrased as a question. We don't expect an answer. We're making a statement by it. You know, mom and dad, is this the way I raised you? We're not asking you to answer that. (laughs) No, the statement is, I didn't raise you to be this way. And if your boss says, you know, do you think I'm stupid? You really? No. No, they're not asking you. Please. (laughs) Well, now that you ask. (laughs) No, the statement behind that rhetorical question is, I'm not as stupid as you may think. And you shouldn't have tried to pull that one over on me. So James isn't asking them questions. He's making two statements to begin his argument. And here's what he says. Here's a paraphrase of the two questions. And then I'll make them into statements. Dear dear friends, come on. If someone claims to know the Lord, but by their behavior they deny him on every level, what good is saying, I know the Lord? Question one. Question two, is that the kind of faith that can get a person to heaven? Statement one, it means absolutely nothing if a person claims to be a Christian and doesn't live like one. Two, that kind of faith cannot save anyone. So, you know, he's made his proposition. And and folks, I see this and you see this everywhere I go. How about an illustration from contemporary life. Most of you know that I taught at a vocational school for 10 years. I quit that job about three years ago or four years ago now to do this full time. But I enjoyed it very much, and I taught English full time at that vocational school. I was really a general education uh, instructor. And I had many conversations. I'm going to give you a real conversation kind of pieced together, but an actual conversation that I had several times over the 10 years. I'd start one of my classes by saying, just curious, do we have people who believe in God here? And the hands would go up, and most of the class. Uh, I only had one or two born-again Christians in the class, but most of the hands out of the 30 seated would raise their hands, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I am a Christian. And so John comes by my desk and I say, John, I noticed that you said you're a Christian. Praise the Lord. I didn't know that about all this time with you. And I've just never 
known that. That's funny that you've never said anything to your pa- a pastor who's your teacher, and I've never heard you sharing with your classmates. And he says, you know, you don't got to be vocal about it to be a Christian, do you? And I said, no. And then I said, well, which church do you go to? Pal, you know, is it around here? Well, which, which one? I don't really go to one. I used to go with my auntie, but, you know, you don't got to go to church to be a Christian, do you? Mm, no. Number three, what Bible version do you like? I like the NIV. What Bible version do you look at? And he goes, uh, well, I don't know. I don't really have a Bible. You don't have a Bible. Well, you don't got to read the Bible to be a Christian, do you? No. You're right. Then I said, well, what's your favorite Christian singer? What kind of Christian music do you like? I didn't even know there were Christian singers. (laughs) You don't got to listen to Christian music to be a Christian. And I said, no, you don't got to. And then, he, then I said, I'm relentless, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. And I, I would say I'm the teacher from hell, but I was the teacher from heaven. <laughs> it's all your perspective there. <laughs> so then I said, I noticed you turned in someone else's work last week. And, and that when you came back from lunch, your eyes were a little red and you smelled a little funny. And, and, and did, did I hear you say you went to Reno with your girl last week? Did you guys stay in different beds? And he said, they call me Rain Man. He said, Rain Man, I ain't no Christian. I ain't no Christian. You win. Well, it was the girlfriend that did it in for him. I said, no, Christians don't do that. He said, I ain't no Christian. You win. Well, that was nice. I had a lot of people who write to the bitter end. You don't got to be perfect to be a Christian, do you? And he got me again. No, you don't. So I answered. I affirmed him all the way down. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're wrong. Because you have the kind of faith that's nominal. It's not life-producing. You think you're a Christian. You raised your hand like a Christian. But James says there's a problem. You're really not. The word faith appears 11 times in this portion. Peace, this in the Greek, it means very different than English. It doesn't mean to intellectually assent to something like I believe in something is right. It means to trust into it's very awkward in Greek. It's like to whoever believes into Jesus shall be saved. Well, you wouldn't say that in English. It's because it doesn't mean what you think it means in English. It has a different nuance. It means the difference between uh, saying, as we went skydiving, remember we went skydiving, it was a lot of fun, and uh, Zach and I were in the same plane. Oh, man, I'm nervous talking about it, just remembering going to the edge and jumping out into, from a perfectly good airplane. <laughs> it didn't make sense what, at all, but I did it. Well, there's a difference between saying, I believe that that parachute is well-made and will do the job, 
And I saw these kids who are hired, really young ones, to pack it. And, and I was watching him pack it, and I, and I thought, I, I believe that he's doing a good job packing that. <laughs> now, the true test is when I jumped out of the plane. That's biblical faith. I, I believed into it, out of the plane. Now, now biblically, I'm a believer. Before I jump, biblically, I've made some claims. I've thought some thoughts. But I haven't biblically, experientially believed. That's his point. So I had to explain to John, as I did for 10 years to all my classes, right on the board, I believe in God is different from I believe there is a God. Most people say, when they say, I'm a believer in God, I believe in God. They mean, I think there's one out there. James says, well, that's not going to save you. You need to believe into him. Now, let's not misunderstand what James is saying. Here's some clarification. James isn't asking a person to produce good behavior to earn salvation. James is expecting a person to produce good behavior as a result of having been saved and having experienced the Holy Spirit in their heart. And that's very, very important. So I say back to John, you don't got to do anything but have faith. But after you believe, you still don't got to do it, but you want to do it. And without much trying... You do do it. A person who constantly says, you know, you don't gotta, got a problem. (laughs) Because I want, and the Bible preaches a Christianity and a gospel that says, I will love the Lord God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, everything about me. Paul the Apostle, Romans 12 and verse 1, I will lay down my life as a living sacrifice. I will bring not the lamb to the sacrifice, but I myself will come in and lay myself down as a living sacrifice, totally holy, devoted to him. That is what worship is all about. And the person says, I don't gotta, I can do this and this and the other thing because I don't gotta. You got a problem because it's not all heart, all soul, all mind, all strength. So James is saying, hey, you might want to check What's going on in there? So, um, further clarification. You know, I love what Jesus said in John 6, how to get into heaven. They said, what what do we have to do? They're chasing him down. They say, Jesus, good teacher. What must we do to please God, to have eternal life? And he says, believe. Believe into me. Period. John the Baptist. He's baptizing people. And they ask him the same question. What must we do? And he says, I've got a list for you here. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we're Jews. We got it made. And they say, well, what should we do? Well, the man who has two jackets should share with one who has none. The one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized. And they said, well, what about us? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he said. 
Then some soldiers said, well, what should we do to be saved? He says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. John the Baptist isn't saying that, you know, honest people, people who treat people right, people who pay their taxes and collect them properly will go to heaven. They already have saving faith. They've come, why? Repenting to be baptized. He says, now that you have faith alone to come here, confess your sins, and be baptized up from the water, here are the fullness of your faith, hospitality, sharing, honesty, civility, kindness, mercy, and love. Those are things you ought to be seeing in your life. John is not preaching, you know, get busy and please God. He's saying, I already see repentance. I already see faith. That's a given. Now you're asking, well, where do we go from up from the baptismal waters? And he says, sharing, not extorting people, being loving. That's what you could be doing. And it's not in an effort to please God. It's because you've already pleased God by believing. And now he's put his spirit. And imagine they come up out of the waters and they go and they're still extorting people and they're still mean-spirited and they hate people. And they're cheating on their taxes and doing everything like a pagan. But they've been baptized by John the Baptist. John would say, get back in the water. Something didn't happen right. All right? So, moving on. James has a, uh, an illustration of his own. Allow me to paraphrase. James speaking. Here's what I'm talking about. One of the brothers and the sisters in the church family has nothing to wear. There was a fire in their home, and now they have only the clothes on their backs. To make matters worse, the dad's out of work, and they have no food. The kids are really, really hungry. They haven't eaten in three days. You find out about these things, and you see them shivering in the cold. You know they're hungry, and all you can do is offer some pious words. I bless you with peace and warmth and a full tummy. It must be awful. I feel so bad for you. Best of luck to you. I'll be praying for you. But you don't really care, and you don't really do anything to alleviate this suffering. What good was that? So that's what I'm trying to say. Quote, unquote, faith, when it doesn't come to life at the right moment and do something, is as good as dead. So... James is saying, faith in God proves itself by appropriate responses consistent with God's will. First John, his John's proof text in all of this, he says, hey, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know we are in him. Whenever I read that, whoa, I underline, this is how you can tell if you got the real thing. And one sentence follows. He says, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Not perfectly, obviously, but the overall bent of my life must kind of be similar to how Jesus lived. It has to be loving. It has to be merciful. It has to overall be generous. It overall has to be uh, other-centered. Or, he says, your claim is false because you claim to know him, to love him, and to have him living and residing in your life, it must now spill over in your words and your deeds, or you're a liar. At least, 
you're a weak believer. At worst, you're a liar. Because we have a lot of weak believers. And that's addressed in the scriptures as well. There are a lot of ways to test to see if you're a Christian or not, according to the Bible. And, you know, James just, the, and a lot of them seem to pick the compassion. They always pick the compassion. John says, how could the love of God, same, same, same theme, different guy. How could the love of God be in your heart when you see somebody who, who lacks material needs and do nothing about it? How can you say the love of God is in your heart? That's John. Not James. They tend to, I mean, you could go to a, a, a host of different subjects to, to, to make your case. But why is it always, it comes down to showing mercy. Because I think if you don't, if you're not a merciful person, that's like the kingpin of, of godliness. If you ask the scriptures, what is God? He's merciful. And it, that's the biggest thing about God and compassionate and loving and kind and cares about those who are, are needy. And if you can't manifest anything there, that's why they always go to that. I mean, they could put the situation as show you as a hateful Christian. Jesus is loving or an immoral Christian. Jesus was pure or a greedy Christian. But we don't ever see much of that. We see them always going if there's somebody in need, you walk by with a cold, callous, arrogant, nose-in-the-air attitude about them with your pious, hokey-pokey blessing, please re-examine your own Christian faith. <laughs> I told you last week about somebody who spoke. I just saw him, and it reminded me of the person who said to this person in our congregation today, not in our church, in a different setting, said, I, I speak the blessing of financial freedom over you. And he said, where's the check? Remember, I told you that last week. You see, James is just saying the same thing. Oh, be warmed. I speak a blessing of peace and warmth over you. Where's the blankets? Where's the groceries afterwards? Please don't pat yourself on the back because you got the right words or the right thoughts or the right intent. If it didn't manifest itself, James says, it's a zero, man. You walked by, you had the opportunity, you knew about it, and you could do something about it. Those are key. There's a big world out there, and I can't save everybody. But you know that kid on the beach, that old story about the starfish? You know, there's a million starfish on the beach, and this little kid is... Saving them. So he's picking one up and he's tossing it back in the wave. And then he goes, but there's like a billion of them. And an older gentleman sees him and says, Sonny, what are you doing? He says, I'm saving the starfish. He says, you know what? There's a thousand of them right here washed up. What makes you certain that you're making a big difference? You're not making a big difference. There's thousands of them. Kid, you're not going to get to them all. He says, it matters to this one. It matters to this one. I can't get to the whole world, but I can get to whoever crosses my path. 
and who's in my sphere of influence because God ordained my days and ordered my steps and created me to perform good works in Christ. He has ordered my day and he has put them right in front of me. If I know about it and I can do something about it, and even if it means inconveniencing me or means some cost or sacrifice to me, not to say, well, I'm on my way to church or I'm on my way to this or I can't fit that in. I'm sorry. You have to weigh it, and sometimes you can't. But you know in your heart if you can or you can't. James is just saying, check, check your life out, not by your words, but by your deeds and what comes out of your mouth and how you treat people. And then you will know if you're right with the Lord or not. Now, I want to clear this little conversation, this, this little This is one of my favorite parts. He stated his proposal. Faith without works is useless. And he's shown an ugly example of it, right? We just read that. And now my favorite part. He goes in for the kill. All right? Here's the puzzling exchange. I'll read it first in English. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. I've read that hundreds of times. I just don't get it. There are a couple misplaced, not misplaced, but pronouns we can't figure out. Commentators all, these are pages and pages on this little exchange. Here's the best rendering. Listen. James speaking. I hear your argument. You say, look, James, one person has the gift of doing good deeds and others has the gift of faith. I'm glad you have the gift of mercy and good works, but that's not my gift. I have the gift of faith, and that's okay. James responds, how do we know you actually have that gift of faith? Show me, don't tell me. I don't have to tell you I believe in God because my lifestyle gives it away. That's the best way to understand that. He's just saying, I hear what you're saying. You're saying, look, okay, they can be separate. You, you have uh, this heart for the lost. Hallelujah, that's not my gift. And James says, you don't get a hall pass on compassionless Christianity. Or a faith that doesn't have deeds attached, whatever subject you're talking about. So all they were trying to say is, look, I can have my faith and not have your gift to be out evangelizing the world. You may not have to evangelize like I evangelize, but you do have to be light and salt somehow in your world. It may not look like what I'm doing right now. And your stories may not be like mine at Starbucks and all of these stories that I tell you. But to say a Christian is free from having to share the gospel in some way that God has given to you to do, that's James' problem here. He says, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. We got an evangelist, that's true. But there's a part of your Christian life that needs to show that you are evangelizing in some way. Now for my favorite part. He, gets, he goes for the jugular. You believe there's one God. Great. Guess who else believes that? The devil. Hello. <laughs> the hello is in the Greek. It's, it's hard to see because it, it's not there. But here, he, he and his demons have faith just like you. But at least they shudder in fear. 
You don't even do that. So let's talk about that. You say, and I'm glad, God is one. Now, that's a Jewish thing. It's carried into their Christian life. It's called a Shema. And what they used to do, the Jews would wake up every morning and before they went to bed and before they died. It's very important to say the Shema Israel. It means, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a declaration of faith and a pledge of allegiance to one God. And so it was popular back in the Roman Empire as well for Christians, especially from Jewish uh, descent, to keep saying that because they lived in a polytheistic society. And so they would say that. And so they're saying, look, James, I got the creed down. I could tell you all about God. He's one God. We know the Bible. We got orthodox sound doctrine. And James says, guess who else has his facts about straight about God? The devil. Do you remember all the times when Jesus would approach demon-possessed people? What did they say? I'll quote to you what they said. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Have you come to judge us and torture us before the appointed time? They know they believe in his virgin birth. They believe in his title. There's no devil in hell who's an atheist or agnostic at all. They quote scriptures. Oh, Jesus, throw yourself down from the temple, for it is written in Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge over you, lest you strike your foot upon a stone. Knows the Bible. Got his facts straight. He knows about the Trinity. He can quote the, the creeds. They believe in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. They believe in a literal hell and a literal heaven and the judgment to come. And they submit to his word, but not from their heart because they were forced to. I read a line that I wrote down here. Hell will have its share of people who had their facts about God straight, but their lives and their hearts crooked. So the second point, I've lingered too long on the first. The second point, we'll just wrap up. There are two examples from Abraham and Rahab to make his point. So the first one was James, dead faith is useless, is saying. And the second one, James is saying, living faith has deeds that accompany it. All right, so he's made his point real quickly now. Just two people to talk about, Abraham and Rahab. He's made his point in a negative way. He said, really, here's what fake faith doesn't do. Now he's going to say, here's what living faith does do. So he's going to go, really, he's really smart because, of course, this is God's word and not James. Um, he's going to go from a famous patriarch, the founder, father of the Jews, and really of Christians who believe like him, uh, Abraham. And then he's going to hear them say, oh, well, of course, Abraham, he's a Bible hero. Of course he has deeds. Then he's going to say, and Rahab, the town prostitute who repented. Hmm. So let's, let's take a look at Abraham first. All right. Here, here's the paraphrase of 20 to 24 real quick. James speaking. You want more proof, silly, silly man? Let's talk about Abraham. Ellie calls him foolish. Silly, silly. 
All right. You want more proof, you fool? <laughs> Wasn't it what Abraham did when he offered Isaac on the altar that showed us he had genuine faith? His faith and his obedience to God were like hand and glove. That's why it says Abraham's faith put him right with God. He was God's friend, and you could see that by what he did. So, yeah, Abraham had more than just faith alone. He had evidence of obedience that comes from genuine living faith. And so, you know, Abraham's faith alone was validated by his actions. And so beautiful dovetailing here of Paul, who uses the verse in the beginning, as I've talked about. He's saying, you must make sure you come to God based on trust and not good deeds. And all James is saying, listen, Paul and James are quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. They're both using the same verse, Paul and James, and they're both making opposite points. So Paul is saying, hey, we need to be like Abraham because he believed God and, that, and God credited his bank account with salvation just because he believed. And then same verse, Genesis 15, 6, James goes to and says, and let me show you how we see that faith, that faith alone manifested in that he offered Isaac on the altar. So God comes to Abraham in faith, who believes, and says, give up your one truest, dearest, closest to your heart possession, your son, upon whom everything hinges. He's the chosen, miraculous son who was born to two people who couldn't have kids. Give him back. So James is saying, oh, you see what true faith does? It'll sacrifice It'll let the knife fall when God says, puts his finger on something, no matter how near and dear, and how part of the dream it was. He says, that's got to die. That's got to go. And he says, genuine faith, your faith alone, people, better have an expression like letting the knife go. Well, God stopped the knife from going. God was just telling a story. Same hill, Mount Moriah, 2,000 years later, the father would take the son, Isaac, Jesus, and up the hill on his own, carrying his own wood, just like the perfect Isaac picture of Jesus. And he said, Abraham, I need you to just kind of work this out for me so I can preach a little lesson to everybody. And he said, sure. But if he didn't have the true faith, he would never have done that. That's his point. And then the closing punch is Rahab. Here's the last paraphrase and then a couple comments. In a similar way, wouldn't you agree Rahab the prostitute proved she had faith when she took the side of Israel and protected the Hebrew spies by hiding them in her house and sending the bad guys off in a different direction? That's not faith alone. That's faithful grown. All right? And that's exactly what it is. So what is James saying with... James is saying that Rahab's faith, here's what she thought and had faith. Here's what she said. You remember, now this is crazy because we're parked at, at Joshua chapter 2 in our midweek Bible study. So we're right at Rahab's story. In fact, that's the next thing we talk about. So I don't want to steal the thunder from that. But the main thing is, is that Israel's about to take Canaan. They send a couple spies over to check out 
Jericho. They get in, they slip in through the wall there. They're in the city. And they're staying at an inn, but it's run by a, a, an immoral woman, Rahab. The king of Jericho finds out and sends soldiers and says, Rahab, bring the traitors out, bring the bad guys out. And she says, oh, they were here. They went that away. <laughs> they went that away. Why did she do that? She hid them under some flaxseed up on that roof. And she said, oh, hold on, guys. I'll take care of this. A pagan prostitute. And this is what she told them. We've heard the stories. Oh, everybody's talking about what this Jehovah God did for you guys. And how he busted you out of Egypt and nobody can stand in your way. And we all know you're on the other side of the Jordan and you're, at, you're aiming for this place. I believe, she says, that the Lord is the supreme God. That's what she says. Faith alone. And here's what faith alone does. It'll put itself in harm's way. Because she believes that he's the supreme God. The way we know is she jumps. She puts the shoot on and she jumps. And she risks her life by going to soldiers, a woman, a prostitute. And she says, oh, uh, that way. Go that way. Hey, I think I see them. You might catch them. And off they go. That is so. And, and James says, bingo. Now that's faith. If she would have stopped and said, you know what? I believe he's the supreme God. And I believe he's going to give you this land, which she says. And then did nothing. I said, you know what? They're hiding upstairs. Go get them. James says, oh. You didn't have the real thing. You just had some head knowledge, and that isn't enough to save you. A cardiologist ought to be able to perform bypass surgery. Fish ought to be able to swim. And a person with saving faith ought to be living like it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, and none of us live up to the ideal. We all fall short. We all struggle with sin. Father, but the bent of our lives is to love the Lord with all our hearts and to love others as we love ourselves. So help us, dear Father in heaven, as Paul admonished us, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Help us to, with a cold eye just to listen to our thoughts and monitor what comes out of our mouth and check us out how we're living so that we might not be caught by surprise and deluded. So bring this truth home, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.